Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the managing editor of Providence. And today I am speaking with Nadine Maenza, who is the vice chairman for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And she is also the executive director of Patriot Voices. And uh, she has served as chairman of the Hardwired Global, an NGO that works with uh, religious freedom advocates in Iraq, Sudan, Nigeria, and other countries. So she is very much an expert on all of these international religious freedom issues. And first off, Nadine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I um, always look forward to the opportunity to talk about these important issues. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, could you describe what the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom is and what the organization does and your role within that? That would be great. The Commission on International Religious Freedom, we were created um, by the same um, International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 that created the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom with the ambassador. And we currently have Ambassador Brownback, who's, who's doing an amazing job. And so we were created at the same time as an independent agency. And what's neat about us is we have a very specific mandate to only consider religious freedom. And to, so we assess religious freedom conditions abroad. We do our own research and then we make recommendations to our own government, to the president, secretary of state and to Congress. And, um, you know, so we, we are very bipartisan. We always say we're the most effective bipartisan, maybe the only one in Washington, we're not sure, but there's really no daylight between the Republicans and the Democrats on our commission. So there are nine of us commissioners who are appointed by the president, as well as the Republican and Democratic leaders in the House and Senate. So there are nine commissioners. We have a professional staff of about 20 who are excellent experts on different regions, different countries. And, you know, we are able um, to, to really speak into events quickly as they happen where the State Department it has a different, um, you know, obviously mandate. So when they are dealing with the religious freedom issue, they have to consider it with in the, in the um, you know, considering the geostrategic and all the things going on with the bilateral relationships um, in terms of how to deal with that issue. So what we do is call out truth. So we basically say this country may be an ally of the United States, but we are seeing these conditions in this country and we're able to write about them and speak about them very specifically. And, and to be honest, it's, we're, we team really well with the State Department there. Sometimes it seems like we're harsh on them when we're criticizing or encouraging, um, but usually they're very open because it gives them leverage to go back to this country and say, we're getting a lot of problems. We have a lot of people upset about what you're doing with either a prisoner or a, a law or some sort, especially countries that are allies. Um, and, and they're able to use the information we provide in, in terms of their own work. You know, And sometimes, of course, they have a lot of more um, complicated things going on and, and um, they don't move on our recommendations. But either way, it it's a way for us to, to speak right into religious freedom. And I think it was a, a really wise um, way that Congress set up for us to be able to, to make a religious freedom a priority in, in foreign policy. And in early August, you wrote an op-ed marking the sixth anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. And I'd like you know to say that most Americans who were following the news then probably heard about the Yazidis in Iraq and the devastation that ISIS brought upon them. So I wouldn't be surprised if many have forgotten about these events or are fuzzy on the details. Could you summarize what happened then? Sure. So, you know, ISIS um, really despised the Yazidis above all. The Christians had an opportunity, um, even though they persecuted and killed and enslaved plenty of Christians as well, they often would, would let them pay a, a fine or flee. But but Yazidis, they did not. Um, they considered them devil worshippers because of the way their religion um and so they they were particularly harsh and, and really had a genocidal intent. So they came into Sinjar um, in August 3rd of, of 2014, 
with, with the intent of committing genocide and eliminating them. Um, and they went in and in, in the village of Kosho in particular, we, we, um, our family became close to a, a young woman who had um, ended up escaping from ISIS and her brother um, and their whole family was part of this day where, where ISIS came into Kosho. They divided the men and the women up, the older men uh, or, and, and the older women, they just killed and put in ditches and, and um, any, you know, teenage boys were included in that. I shouldn't say older men, any, anyone that wasn't a child basically were, were, were killed on the men's side and then the older women. And, um, and then the, 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 the children, um, the young boys were taken to be trained as soldiers. Um, the young women, of course, the young and the, and the, um, the girls were taken and they were sold into slavery. And, um, you know, we still have 2,800, um, girls and, and children missing, um, that we haven't been able to account for. Um, it was a horrific crime. Um, the, the family that we're close to, um, the girl escaped from ISIS. Her brother climbed out of a pit that day that he was supposed to be killed, but he, he was able, he survived. But three, three of the, his brother, their brothers and their mother and their father were killed on that day and put into mass graves. So that was the trauma that came upon this um, community. And um, so, um, so many of them went up to the KRG and were in, in the, the Kurdistan regional government of the Kurdish government up in the northern part of Iraq has housed them, but, but very few have been able to come back out of the 400,000, only 100,000 um, have returned. And so um, in, in return to conditions that are no better than they were six years ago. Hey, what were those numbers again? You said um, only. So 100,000 have returned, about 100,000 have, have been um, gone other places. So Germany has taken a whole lot of um, Yazidis. There's been some countries that have accepted them as refugees. And um, about 200,000 are still in, in camps, um, IDP camps up in the, the Kurdistan regional government. They, um, you know, it has been hard to return because um, they they really leveled um, Sinjar. Um, and, and there's a lot of landmines. I was talking to one Yazidi leader whose house is still booby-trapped um, with bombs in it that they still have not removed. So there hasn't been a whole lot of um, reconstruction done in Sinjar. So it, it's frustrating for, for, for us um, to look at, you know, these strong, every year that the community comes together and speaks about the Yazidi genocide, and then every year nothing changes in their homeland. You know, there are 83 countries that were part of the coalition, um, and, and yet um, so little has been done um, in their own community. So. I'm really hopeful that this year that the international community will will take a stronger look at, at, at doing more. But really, the security situation for both Yazidis and Christians has been part of the reason that there hasn't been investments and that governments aren't rebuilding because it's it's not the kind of situation that looks like it could have long term stability. And in your op ed, you talked about how uh, you know the split between Baghdad and Kurdistan, so Baghdad being the central government and the Kurdistan, or the Erbil government, the uh, Kurdistan regional government, and how that is causing problems in Sinjar. Like, could you describe, like, what's going on there with that? So, so part of uh, um, what had happened in Iraq, um, you know, after the U.S. invaded, um, it became much more sectarian. And, and we had a lot, frankly, to do about that in terms of, of just our actions and, and even dividing up communities where it became more and more sectarian. And, you know, whenever there's a lack of governance, you know, in these areas is, is where you see a lot of extremism. I just um, stumbled upon an article from 2001. I mean, sorry, 2011, before ISIS even had entered Sinjar, talking about the disputed territories from, I think it was the Institute of Peace and then how how the extremists were taking advantage of it. So what happened is there's this area between 
the Kurdish um, regional government and then the Iraqi central government. And it's an area they both have claimed. And so you think in some respects, well, if they're both claiming the land, that then they're both there, right? But it's the opposite. Think about land rights, how important they are. When you know land is yours, you invest in it, you take care of it. But if you were on land that someone may take, you're not going to invest in it. So what you saw is you saw this whole strip of area, which is where all the minorities lived, is both both KRG and the, interna- the, the uh, Iraqi central government both wanted the land, but they weren't sure they would have it. So neither invested in it. And so you had this situation where both wanted control, but both wouldn't invest in it. So you have troops from both of them fighting each other. Or you have, you know, no one investing in, in infrastructure. And so it, it's a situation that, that um, you know, during these years, um, the, the Sunni extremists took, took advantage of. And currently we have the Shia militias taking advantage of. So, so there are gaps in the security, gaps in governance, gaps, gaps in investments. And um, these extremists uh, have, are taking advantage of it and hurting um the religious minority. So currently in Sinjar, we have a situation where um, the mayor of Sinjar was, is a, a Yazidi, was forced out, currently works out of Dohuk, hasn't stepped foot in Sinjar since 2007, sorry, 2017. And they were um, aligned with the, the Kurdistan regional government. But so then uh, the, 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 um, the, the militias, the Hashishabi, um, have um, popular mobilization forces they have put in their own mayor that's an, an unofficial mayor that is is um, answering to Tehran, to Iran, even though their salaries are paid by the Iraqi government. And they are sitting in the mayor's office in Sinjar, running Sinjar. And so you have this, this situation where, um, you know, the militia presence in Sinjar um, filling this, this gap from this disputed area, um, even though, you know, the, Kurdistan, the, the Iraqi government pushed um, Kurdistan government up north, uh, kind of out of the area, but it still left its mark and that, that, that they still have this standoff going on. And so we have this situation where there are so many militias um, that a drive, um, it, it should take, so so many of the, the refugees or displaced um, are up at, in Dohuk, which is in the Kurdistan regional government area in northern Iraq. It should take a two and a half hour drive to go down to Sindra if they want to check on their home or visit family if they're staying still in the, the camp. So, but what we're seeing is we're seeing that um, it takes about between eight and 12 hours to do that drive because of all the militias. I was checkpoints. I was to- told there was over 30 checkpoints. I personally visited not Sindra, but the Nineveh Plains um, in November of last year. In my drive, um, I was escorted by security, so I didn't have to stop at checkpoints, but I went through 11 checkpoints between Erbil and um, Mosul, which was a couple hour drive, but it's far worse on the Yazidi side. So a lot of times the, these militias will extort money from them or they'll they'll turn them back and just say, no, you have to go back and, and not let them go. So freedom of movement is a tough thing. Um, they they um, are harassed and um, and it's not a sustainable situation. And uh, who is like between Baghdad and Erbil, like who is treating Yazidis better? Because I under or my understanding is that for Christians, they seem to favor uh, the KRG or Erbil and the Kurdistan regional government. Is that true for Yazidis or am I misremembering things here? It really depends on who you ask. Um, I spoke to a an Assyrian in the Nineveh Plains who told me that he preferred ISIS over the KRG because he was just so angry at the, some of the decisions they had made. And I was confused by that. But 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 the point being is, is he was frustrated with, with their government. I Personally, and, and of course, with, with the U.S. Commission, we have been, you know, the Kurdistan regional government has been amazing in taking all of these displaced people and housing them and, and overseeing them. But, but they, 
you know, have different um, ways of dealing with the communities that some of the communities aren't, aren't always happy with them either. So, so, and, and when you're in a situation that's untenable where there's, you know, no security, no infrastructure, it's easy to be frustrated at the governments that, that you think should have played a role in that. So it's a little bit of a mix. I think Yazidis, there's a frustration with both governments and that you're going to hear from both, I think, the Christian or the Yazidi um, communities because things are so bad um, and there's so much frustration. So the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom recommends Iraq for a special watch list. And the annual report says that despite humanitarian assistance from the U.S., civilians from religious and ethnic minorities are still at you know, serious risk, including many Iraqi Christians. And the report also mentions how the lack of security is a particular problem. And you had already mentioned earlier the Iranian-backed PMFs or the popular mobilization forces, these militias are problematic. So could you like describe like some of these other religious minority groups? Like I know Providence, we've, you know, ha- had Assyrians and we've had articles about, I think, Turkmen and other groups. Could you describe some of these other groups and how do the Iranian-backed militias cause problems? Right. So so really all the minorities are at the mercy of these groups. You know, the, the Sabian Ma- Mandians, um, where they baptism is a big part of their religion, of course, the Yazidis, the Chaldeans, um, Assyrians are, are Christians, but, you know, the one of the Chaldeans are more of the Catholic and, and the Assyrians. So the, and, a, and different ones have different ways of defining their groups. So so one Christian group will be defined a certain way and then they'll include another group in their description, but the other group won't just, you know, describe them in there. So it's kind of complicated when you look at numbers. Sometimes you might be confused that they don't add up. The Turkmen are there as well, um, and they have a, a kind of province between an area that they live between um, the, the Christians and the Yazidis. And really all the religious, all the minorities um, suffer to some degree. Certainly, you know, the Christians and the Yazidis um, have have seemed to have taken special, um, you know, there seems to be a, a special attack on, on both of those. And in the, the Iranian militias have been um, especially difficult with them. We know that, um, like, for instance, in the Nineveh Plains, um, the Babylon Brigade is a Christian, believe it or not, um, militia. <laughs> and their um, leader, um, Rayan Kildani, was actually sanctioned by the U.S. government last year for atrocities against um, um, all sorts of people, but certainly religious minorities and harassment and so forth. And, and in the areas that they um, oversee in the Nineveh Plains, I think only 7% of the Christians have returned in those areas. It's, it's impossible to be a Christian. And it was under this particular militia. And it, it's, it's such a sad thing, too, because they take a couple of seats in parliament that the militia uses that are set aside for Christians. So there's so many ways that Christians are pushed out. Um, you know, their fighters are Shia Arabs, um, so they're not even Christians um, from the area, even though they call themselves a Christian um, militia. And when I was there, I saw for myself the posters of, you know, the Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini that, they had, that, that were up all over the place. You know, so there, it, it's a very difficult place for for Christians to live, and um, you know, for a while, there's been a lot of us that have been talking about um, you know self governance in, in in you know a province where where they Christians as well as Yazidis and, and the Turkmen too, if they if they chose to do this, could you know have a say in their governance. You know, not not as an independent country, of course, but more like a state. You know, I live in Pennsylvania. You know, we have our own security in Pennsylvania, we have our own governance, you know, and, and have that kind of thing going on there that the Iraqi constitution provides for provinces. It wouldn't be quite the same as a KRG. They have, uh, you know, a little bit more um, independence up there, even though they are part of the Iraqi government. 
but but this would be under the Iraqi central government um, or the KRJ. Could, there are different ways it could be set up, but the, the Iraqi central government allows for this sort of thing. It seems to be the only way forward for long-term religious minorities um, in the country. You know, most experts will will, will just say, you know, it's it, it's not time. It's it, it's a bad. I mean, it's it's a good idea, but it's impossible to do. It would take the U.S. Um, stepping in and helping, and and I know that there's not a real appetite for for anything like that at this point in time. But it it it, it means um, probably at some point in time the Christian and the Yazidi population is going to be difficult for them to sustain um, in their areas with this security situation. And, and the U.S. and other countries need to put pressure on the prime minister. But the prime minister is in a tough situation himself. I'll, I'll just quickly tell a story of, of, of just what happened to him recently. He, he um, has, The new prime minister in just May, um, Mustafa al-Kadami, was, um, was um, appointed by parliament to, to be um, the prime minister. And he um, had formerly served as an intelligence chief and has a strong relationship with the United States. And so he ordered the arrest of 14 members of um, Kitab Hezbollah, one of the largest militias for launching rockets at U.S. forces. And so what they did is they brazenly drove around his home in the green zone in Baghdad. (laughs) And, you know, none of his forces stopped them. And um, in the end, they ended up arresting some of the men and then releasing them. Um, But the point being is, is it's gotten to the point that taking on these militias, um, there would have been a time it would have been easier and, and, and now it's harder. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't sit down and talk through all the different ways it could be done and that the U.S. and, and other countries could support Iraq. But, but currently it, it does seem that Iraq at some, in, in some capacity is almost held hostage by Iran because of the security forces that are here. And a lot of these militia um, members are just for hire, it's a job for them. So it doesn't. I'm not suggesting that all of them are bad. And in the Yazidi areas, in particular, they do have um, some um, Yazidis that are part of militias that are part of the system as well. You know, they they could easily be turned into a force for Yazidis. That the answer to the Yazidis, not to the the militia leaders. In the uh, report that your organization put out, it made some recommendations for the U.S. government. Yeah, do you see any movement on that front with those recommendations, or and what are some of those recommendations? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we we do, you know, the we we do appreciate, of course, this administration has made religious freedom a priority, and you know, and, and even from a bipartisan standpoint, we're constantly thanking, you know, the government for doing that. Um, but but we do see that the recent meetings, for instance, with um, the prime minister, um, where he met with Secretary of State um, Mike Pompeo. And they had a readout of the event, and it didn't mention anything about religious minorities in, in their meetings. And so we're hoping that, that that there was some discussion on religious minorities and, and some of these issues, but but none that we have heard so far. You know, first we you know we have so there's a way that the State Department um, ranks countries um, that are a, a, that that either commit atrocities against um, religious groups or against I should say religious freedom or ones that tolerate it, um, either one are looked at disfavorably. Um, so the first would be countries of particular concern. And those are the, the countries that, um, you know, most of the, the, most of them are pretty well known as being um, countries. Pakistan is a newer one, but North Korea, um, India is one of the, so we make recommendations for countries for the country of particular concern to the State Department. Then they choose some of the countries um, and then they're able to sanction them or sometimes give them waivers. A country like Saudi Arabia usually gets waivers, but it's a way that they can um, call out a country for being 
um, a violator of religious freedom. And so we have recommended that Iraq be a, a special watch list country, which would be the second tier down for tolerating religious freedom um, violations. The, the U.S. government has not um, put them in that category. Um, but we do think because they tolerate what we're talking about, what's happening in the Nineveh Plains, um, that, 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 that they should be on this list and they should have um, the government should be dialoguing with them to move that. So, you know, we've made recommendations. One of the biggest ones is, is the is a, what we talked about, the militia. This is pulling those in and, and, and the Iraqi in the past prime minister announced that they were going to pull them in and then he didn't follow through. So it seems like every prime minister says they're going to do it and then they don't. So we have one of our recommendations is that they they follow through with their recommendation to do that. And the U.S. government help them and also continue with these targeted sanctions you know, that um, the U.S. government has been very aggressive with targeted sanctions, and it's an effective way to make at least there be a cost for these actions. For instance, you know, when I talked about Kildani, the, the leader of the Babylon Brigade, you know, a sanction against him means he can't, you know, um, traveling will be difficult for him um, with a visa ban to the United States or in other countries follow suit with us often. So in the global Magnitsky, we'll, we'll, um, we'll put those um, sanctions will will affect his finances. So it's difficult for him to make investments or to move money around internationally. And and so um, for us, at least there's a cost. And of course, pointing a finger and saying this person is violating um, human rights um, and, and needs to be called out for it. So we we think there should be more of that. It's a great way to, um, to, to really make there be a cost um, and to continue dialoguing with Iraq about religious freedom and, you know, to continue to to um, invest in these communities. So um, we mentioned how there's not a lot of investment that's been done in Sinjar. I'm hopeful that this year that will change. There's been a lot of work done in the Nineveh Plains. And, you know, USAID has um, done um, an extraordinary job rebuilding homes and schools and all sorts of um, infrastructure in the Nineveh Plains. The problem is, is you know, these, these areas um, will likely not, you know, contain Christians it permanently. And so sometimes I, you know, it's easier for us obviously to rebuild homes than it is to fix the security situation. But, you know, I'd make the case that sometimes we get the, the cart ahead of the horse, you know, which is like, we, 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 we got it, you know, there was an, there was a time years, years, a couple years ago, it would have been easier to deal with the, the militia situation. And we're, we're not, we weren't focusing on it because either way, it's always going to be hard. Um, but so we, we're hopeful. I know the U.S. government's doing some work in Sinjar right now, and I'm I'm really pleased to hear them being willing to support the community. There's some really wonderful organizations like Yazda for Yazidi and others that do excellent work. Um, I work pretty closely with Marat Ismail, who was one of the co-founders of Yazda, who I wrote that article with that you mentioned that um, we talk a lot about security and, and education and the different things that we can do to help this community. You know, I think it's really important myself. I'm a Christian and um but I'm not, I don't live in the Nineveh Plains. I'm not Iraqi. You know, I'm not Syrian. These are countries that are close to my heart. I, I try really hard to stay in touch with people on the ground and to find out, you know, how I can advocate the voices of people who have lived these experiences. Because I think it's really easy in Washington sometimes for us to, you know, grab onto an idea and run with it and not keep in constant touch with um, the people on the ground that are, are going to be affected by it. And I've already changed things that I was fighting for because they were like, oh, not anymore, you know, and and it's really their call. And so I, I really appreciate Murad um, letting me work with him because he's lived, he's from Sinjar and, and he's in touch with them all the time and, and able to, um, to, do, to, to understand how best to help this community. And that's really what we could do is stand behind the, the people in this community and, and, and stand for them. And as a Christian, I think supporting um, all religions is, is super important. Everyone has a right to believe or not to believe. 
you know, I do a lot of advocacy for, for atheists in some Muslim countries. And, and at the same time, you know, if you're, if you don't have the right to be a Muslim, an atheist, you probably don't have a right to be a Christian. You know, these are, these kind of go hand in hand that you have the right to believe or not to believe. And they're all very interrelated. And in the report, you also, or your organization talks about the situation in Syria causing knock-on effects in Iraq. So could you describe the situation in especially Northeast Syria and also like what Turkey is doing and some of those issues? So um, Northeast Syria is a very unique situation um, for the United States um, because we have um, a government there called the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria that literally has the best religious freedom conditions in the Middle East. And we don't say that lightly, of course, for those of us at, at um, USER. But this government um, kind of popped up out of nowhere in the middle of a civil war, in the middle of the fight against ISIS. So we, we've all heard the stories probably about Syrian democratic forces, which are our, the U.S.'s forces on the ground to fight ISIS. There's about 100,000 maybe forces between 60 and 100,000. Um, and they have, um, you know, never had an insider attack against the United States, have, have been these really great partners. But when they went around and they, they were the ones that destroyed the caliphate in Syria. And when they would, when they would go in and, and, and liberate the, the community from ISIS, they would set up governance right away. And they would set up what's called a commune. It would be kind of like a, almost like a co-op. And they'd, they'd elect a, a, a woman and a man. Their, their religious freedom conditions are matched by their, their equality for men and women. And so women leaders, they have as many of them as they have men leaders, so they'll vote for, for leaders. And then, um, then they would start building an economy, have committees for education, all sorts of different things. And this would go on. And they did this throughout all of Northeast Syria. And then out of nowhere, they popped up a government um, that was under the central government. It's never meant to be independent. It's always meant to be kind of like a state. Um, but it's produced these religious freedom conditions that are really astounding to us. And so um, Turkey across the border um, has not been so happy with them. I'm convinced that um, that they mean harm because there is a group called um, the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, that is it's kind of you know it's it's considered a terrorist group. Some people think it fits more of an armed group that's fought that, that's been um, fighting for for rights for Kurds for years. I mean, for many years in in, in all these these countries, Kurds couldn't couldn't identify as Kurds. They couldn't use their language. They couldn't. Um, have Kurdish names, you know, they, their identity was hidden and the PKK really fought for them to have that identity back. But, but they're, they were designated as a terrorist group. So Turkey um, has, has written this narrative that, that this entire government is, is against them, which isn't the case at all. But um, they're too busy governing to be able to really be concerned about Turkey. And there's been no attacks from Northeast Syria to Turkey. But nevertheless, Turkey um, has invaded a few times, now three times, come in and taken land. And the sad thing about it is when they take land from, from this area, is they um, turn it in, into almost like ISIS, um, that, like the caliphate. They've in, in, in a friend, for instance, they uh, entered in 2018, and they have um, put in Sharia law. Um, and there was a lot of Kurdish Christian converts because in the autonomous administration of North and East Syria, you're allowed to change your religion. It's the it's the only place, really, in the region you can do that. And um, so they have a pretty large Kurdish Christian church, evangelicals, and um, now recently they're they've been going after them for apostasy. And, the, and so there's a couple of people there, one in particular that we've advocated for, his name is Radwan Muhammad, who was arrested for having a Christian funeral for his wife. They had converted decades before, but nevertheless, um, he was put in prison um, and is still there for this. And so it's disappointing to see um, Turkey come in and um, with this Islamist um, militias that work with them called Free Syrian Army and, um, and others and, and institute really horrific um, 
claims. And it's really, it's, it's also brought ISIS back up again in the region because ISIS, when that happened, they looked at the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, and they thought, you know, it, it, it must be temporary. Maybe it will fall. We're going to try to help make it fall. So then they've all kind of popped up and started, um, you know, more attacks. And then of the Iranian militias, um, the Assad's regime, again, also doing the same thing, which is, you know, maybe they were not permanent. And so they have um, been causing uh, some problems, although because the governance is so strong, um, the, the autonomous administration is, is still been stable during all this entire time. So we have, um, you know, we've made recommendations to the U.S. government to lift sanctions on just the area that's governed by the autonomous administration. They have 80 percent of the oil. They have the most fertile land in the Middle East, and they don't need nation building. They don't need more troops. They don't need more money. So we're normally in a situation like in Iraq where they need our money. They need every, you know, they just need our help. The autonomous administration is a unique government, and their governance is, is so effective. They don't really need any, anything from us except for us to let them survive. And they want us to back them because they share our values. They don't want to align with Russia or Assad or anyone else because they obviously don't share their values. So we've asked, made some recommendations that the U.S. government would um, would also engage directly with the government. They haven't given them recognition, so they don't engage with them. They don't fund them. They do fund the Syrian Democratic Forces and work with the, their army, but they don't actually with the government themselves. So we, we've really, um, and we've also asked the government to pressure Turkey to withdraw. Um, because Turkey has been committing these atrocities against Christians, um, Yazidis in particular have been um, really, um, again, Islamists go after the Yazidis in a different kind of way, destroyed a lot of the sites, um, their, their shrines. In Afrin, I think there were 11 women that were kidnapped, um, a combination of Yazidi, Kurdish and Christian, I believe, just in the last month. So it's really um, a horrible situation that we're seeing there. So we, we really um, pressured the U.S. government to support this government for doing a good job and to also push Turkey back because, like I said, because of our mandate, we're able to just call these things out the way that they are. Even though Turkey is a NATO ally, they're nevertheless committing these atrocities against Christians, Yazidis, and others. And now we still have about, you know, I believe 100,000 or so, 80, 90,000 displaced. So, so what happened is, you know, a lot of the people fled um, when Turkey came in. And so then they put a lot of um, their fighters and others and refugees from other parts of the country into those homes. So a lot of people have lost everything and are now in refugee camps. Um, and I know the U.S. government would like them to resettle. But uh, until Turkey um, leaves, that will be difficult. And so we've also recommended that Syria be a country of particular concern because the government there, clearly the Assad government that oversees the whole country, has allowed all sorts of atrocities against religious minorities. Um, he's pretended, you know, Assad has always said he's a protector of Christianity, but there have been a lot of reports that have proven that he actually, in, during the Civil War, would bomb churches and then come in and pretend like it was the opposition and then try to, you know, be the friends to the Christians. So, so he uses Christians as a prop, but certainly has not offered true religious freedom. So we've talked a bit about Iraq and Syria, but of course, I know you work with other groups facing religious persecution in other parts of the world. So uh, as we close out here, could you discuss what other situations listeners should monitor? Sure. One of the, the biggest um, probably news during our um, annual report that we released at the end of April was we recommended that India be designated as a country of particular concern because the religious freedom of um, conditions there have deteriorated terribly in the last year. And there, um, there was a Citizenship Amendment Act that they passed that basically um, um, provides a, a, a way um, for citizenship 
for people that are not Muslims, but Muslims are excluded. So that, you know, the, the lack of, of citizenship is a taking citizenship away from religions is a very serious thing. We saw this in Burma against the Rohingyas, another area that we're very concerned about. Um, and, and, and they lost citizenship and then eventually there was a genocide against them. And, and, and now we have, you know, over a million of them in a, a camp in, in Bangladesh. And of course, you know, we, we can't not mention China and the, especially the, the situation against the Uyghur Muslims being put in concentration camps and, you know, so much of the international community being quiet about that. And it's, it's, it's really disappointing and, and disturbing. And of course, Christians and other religious minorities are also persecuted. There are pretty much all religious groups. So there, there, you know, with, with that continues to be um, a deterioration worldwide of, of religious freedom and um, it, listeners that one of the best ways to, to, to help is to talk about it, is to share stories. When you hear a story on the internet, you share it with your friends or you share it, retweet it or whatever, and, you know, find the countries that you care about and, and start reading about them and, and seeing how U.S. policy could help change those things. I think with USERF, um, the one thing that people probably are, are most unaware is so much of what we do is behind the scenes. We, you know, we do our reports, but we also do a lot of private meetings, private letters, um, private negotiations. I was involved in one with a prisoner release in a country that was just really um, a, an amazing experience. And, and so we have the opportunity to talk to a lot of people. A lot of governments have people that care about religious freedom in their governments, even if the government themselves aren't moving quite in the right direction and sort of trying to dialogue with them or provide support to those doing the hard work on the ground, like in Northeast Syria, where they're actually governing and fighting for religious freedom, trying to be a support to places like that and to um, really highlight um, the important work being done. So earlier this year, you spoke for a Providence social hour when, you know, we weren't dealing with pandemic stuff and we could actually get more than a few people in a room without masks. And at that event, I remember you talking about some successes that your organization had had where you were talking about putting people on one of these lists, the, what are they, the, oh, what I, I just lost the name of it. The, yep. Country of particular concern or this, the special watch list, right? Those are, all right. we're moving people around for sure this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like, if I remember correctly, I thought you said something about like, there was a country that was going to be put on the list or be put on one of those tiers. And then they kind of came back and were trying to figure out how they could not be put, like what they needed to do. Am I remember that correctly? Or what was the situation? You are. So so I think we're talking about Uzbekistan. So at the time, Uzbekistan was a country of particular concern. The, the State Department had um, taken them off, but Yusuf had not. We still listed them as, as a country that we they had moved in the right direction, but not enough. And their laws still weren't weren't good. And we went and visited the country and, you know, were, were welcomed, um, given direct access to, to key people, had hard conversations. It was one of the rare visits to a country where they were truly dialoguing. A lot of times they'll put on a show for us and try to pretend they're something they're not if they're a country that's been violating religious freedom. But this was a country that was like, no, we're really trying, but but we're moving as fast as we can. You have to understand, you know, this is why we're not moving faster. And at the time, the registration was so ridiculous that there was 11 steps. It was almost impossible for a religious group to get registered. And um, so it, it was really a remarkable thing to see them stop enforcing, first of all, uh, um, the rates. Rates completely stopped um, for the unregistered churches. They registered a bunch of churches. They went through, let um, you know, thousands of, of religious prisoners go. Um, they've literally gone through, so Uzbekistan is this country <laughs> that has, has, has done, um, we said, you know, we need you to do all these things and we'll consider moving you. And they did. They did all the things we asked them to do. They're working on a law currently 
Um, and they've, they, I was just last week on a call with um, several other ambassadors and in, in the repertoire for religious freedom from the UN and, the, and their ambassador talking through what the law looks like. They've been having a lot of public um, forums on Zoom and other places to talk about the law with the international community, but as well as their own community. And, and it's been very transparent and very interesting. So this is a Central Asian country that came from the Soviet um, mindset. Um, and so to see them move in such a short amount of time, they had a new president, their old former president had died and came in and really wanted to move them towards religious freedom. It's been, it's, they still have some struggles um, ahead it, that we, we have them on the special watch list this year. So we moved them down. And so that was really exciting for me because it was one of the ones I was able to be a part of personally and see for myself these changes happen right before me. And the other country that that really has um, taken the everyone by surprise is Sudan. You know, again, a change in leadership. And um, the new prime minister, um, you know, recalled, um, you know, apostasy laws and is is trying to change the legal framework. It was a, There was an attack on his life. And um, but he 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 survived and and has has worked really hard to try to move the country towards religious freedom. So we also put them on the special watch list from the CPC. So it's a pretty rare thing for countries to move off. That's the goal. The goal is that we dialogue with countries that you know we we don't do diplomacy. That the U.S. Commission that is that's up to the State Department. We don't go in and and make deals and say we're going to lift sanctions if you do this because we don't have sanctions, right? We only have recommendations. But what we do have is we have our CPC list, our country particular concern list, or a special watch list country. And both of those lists, if you're a country that doesn't want to be on them, we'll be glad to talk to you about the, the way that we look at, because we only judge by international standards. So we don't go to a country and say, you need to be like the United States. It's the international standard that we're comparing them to. And if they're willing to move towards that standard in order for us to take them off the list, we're thrilled to be able to do that. And we've had that happen this year. In fact, the prime minister of Sudan visited USERF's office. Um, a couple months back when he was visiting Washington, D.C., which which sent a huge message, which he was serious about making real change. And so it's been a really interesting time to be on the commission because of the, you know, the the time of the, these countries wanting to change and also the administration being so favorable towards religious freedom. It's given us a real opportunity um, to dialogue. And even when when like we disagree with the administration, you know, they invite us in and we have a bipartisan meeting at the White House and we're able to, to dialogue about these issues and try to see where we could agree and how we can help these areas to, to be more free. Um, and so I do think that we've had a, a really remarkable year in that respect. One thing is that when you were talking, I was thinking about, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is when I look at some countries like China, and especially this week we saw the news about the Mulan movie, and I, mean, I think there's a lot of problems there with I mean, unlike the Soviet Union, China is much more integrated into the world economy today than uh, Soviet Union was during the Cold War. And so, yeah, there's different incentives for people to gloss over some of the crimes of China. But within that situation, I see how the it's really kind of a power dynamic, it seems like, between like the central government and the local government. And so I find a nefarious motivation for the persecution of religious minorities. But it, like based on like some of the stuff you were saying earlier, it also seems like there is sometimes a government incompetence. I don't know if it's the right word, but just the government is unaware of how to implement religious freedom and that they would want to. They just don't know how, perhaps. Like, do you see that dynamic between different countries? Is there a spectrum? Absolutely. Not with China. I, I see China looks at um, any religious activity as being a threat to the state. And so they have definitely clamped down on, on really, I, I say religious minorities, I'm used to saying that language, but with China, it's pretty much all religious communities. 
And, um, and so that is, in, and it's really a communist um, area because we see that in Central Asia as well. These countries like Uzbekistan was really a lot of um, their harshest uh, laws were against the majority religions, believe it or not, because they were afraid of the, the majority Muslim um, community becoming extreme. And as we know, once you start clamping down, that actually doesn't help the situation. It has the opposite effect on extremism. And so some of their Soviet type policies clamping down on the, on the majority religion, which is Muslim, had the opposite effect. So I do think that there are times where it, it, it can be incompetence in the sense that, you know, moving away, there aren't a lot of models to do that. That's why these countries are remarkable that, that they're trying to figure out how to move away. And there's no one way to do it. And I, I try when I'm talking to ambassadors, like the, the wonderful ambassador with Uzbekistan and to say, you know, you know, we always want them to move faster. But, but having said that, you know, they have to consider their own country's needs and we have to give them some respect in, in that timing. Now we may keep them on the list longer than they want to be on it, but we know that what we want is long-term change. And I think with foreign policy, when you look at U.S. foreign policy, you know, it, it, in Iraq and Syria, for instance, as we've talked so much about those two countries, you see a lot of starts and stops, right? You see surges and then withdraws and just, and a lot of it is it, based on election year type situations. And unfortunately, what you see is with us sometimes making decisions that way for foreign policy. But you see a country like China, you see a country like Russia making long-term decisions. And, um, you know, we it, it, we need to be look, looking at it, things long-term and how can we help these countries move long-term towards religious freedom, um, not just trying to get a quick fix that isn't maybe going to backfire. And, and that's the harder thing to do when there's so many different opinions. But I think having conversations um, and, and trying to re think outside the box and how to support countries that are trying to move a, in the right direction is, is one of the most powerful things we could do. Well, Nadine, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast today and a fascinating conversation. And I think it's always good to talk about these different groups in the Middle East, especially because I think so many Americans think of this region as monolithically Arab, even though there's a kaleidoscope of cultures there. And so thank you for discussing this and I uh, hope our you know, listeners will uh, be able to go follow your organization and learn more about these issues. Sure. I, I thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate the interest and, and so thankful people want to hear about these topics. Usurf.gov is a great resource to learn about these countries. We have annual reports. It's just a two page on each government with a key finding. that's just a couple of paragraphs. We try to make it really simple for people to just jump on and take a look. We've had some hearings. We had a hearing on Northeast Syria that goes through all the details I talked about. We had one about Iraq. You can read about both of those hearings and, and see the data. And um, and I'm Nadine Manza on Twitter um, and weigh in a lot on these issues, but would love um, to connect with any of the, the listeners and appreciate the interest in these topics. And I'll be sure to add the uh, all of the Twitter and I'll add the articles and whatnot to the show notes. That's awesome. That'd be great. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much, Mark.